Hello, history nerds. This is Nick. And this is Andy, and we host The Concession Stand, a podcast from two guys who work in the TV and movie business right here in Los Angeles. And you're listening to the Historium Podcast on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. Communication is one of the most important yet rarely thought about aspects of warfare. The ability to communicate with your troops both quickly and accurately is of utmost importance. Before satellites, before telephones, before even radio, the preferred mode of battle communication was a trusty carrier pigeon. This week we'll be looking at one of the most famous carrier pigeons of all time. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. Episode 23, Dear Friend. When a young man by the name of Gavrilo Princip shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand when his driver made a wrong turn in 1914, most Europeans didn't think much of it at all. Assassinations, even of high-profile rulers, were not at all uncommon. But because of a complex web of political and military alliances that tangled up nearly all of Europe, it turns out that a dead Archduke was all that was needed to envelop the entirety of Europe into war. And not a war that anyone was familiar with. Many historians consider the First World War to be the first ever modern war. By the close of 1914, only a few months after the war began, millions of military personnel and civilians were dead. The strategies of the European leaders had not yet caught up to the technological advancements in warfare, including artillery, machine guns, and poison gas. In an instant, it all became clear that not all the courage in the world could withstand this kind of firepower. By 1915, both sides had dug in, in what we now call trench warfare. The result was opposing trenches with a no-man's land in between them, which occasionally turned into a human meat grinder when one side tried to make a doomed attack. One military leader was noted as saying, if war was once a chivalrous duel, it is now a dastardly slaughter. But the war raged on, sending millions more young men to an early grave. By 1917, the facade of romantic war was all but over. The United States, which had been profiting immensely by selling arms, ammunition, and supplies to Britain and France, was reluctant to enter the war. And for good reason. It may be hard to imagine now, but the United States was incredibly isolationist for the entirety of the 19th century. In George Washington's last letter to Congress, he warned of the downsides of getting involved in foreign entanglements, especially in Europe, as Europeans got in big wars, like, a lot. This letter was read publicly every year, and Americans usually enjoyed being an ocean away from any conflicts of Europe. The current president encapsulated this isolationist standpoint to a T. President Woodrow Wilson had no intention of jumping headlong into what had become the most gruesome war in human history. But a new German policy began to change his view. In 1917, Germans began a practice known as unrestricted submarine warfare. They began sinking American cargo ships that were delivering supplies to the Allies. This, coupled with the Zimmerman Telegraph, where the Germans tried to convince Mexico to declare war on the U.S. to retake lost territory, eventually caused the United States to declare war on Germany and the other Central Powers. A famous newspaper comic portrayed three skeletons wrestling in a pool of blood, and it read, 
Come on in, America. The blood feels great. By 1918, American troops begin arriving on the Western Front. Since the dawn of civilization, animals were used very frequently in warfare. Cattle for carrying supplies, horses, and on rare occasions elephants for cavalry, dogs for patrols, and lastly pigeons for messages. Pigeons were used to send messages across long distances since ancient times due to their incredible innate homing ability. Wherever they are, or wherever they are taken, homing pigeons can find their way back to their roost. Scientists barely understand how this works even today. Recently, trace amounts of iron have been found in pigeons' beaks, and many assume that that iron causes some form of magnetoreception, meaning they have an internal compass. Homing or carrier pigeons have been incredibly useful to humans since ancient times. Things are different nowadays, though. Today, pigeons are widely regarded as a nuisance in major cities, often being unaffectionately called flying rats. But in the First World War, they were a vital part of battlefield communications. Here's how it worked. With so little movement during trench warfare, armies would have home bases with hundreds of pigeon coops. The pigeons in these coops would be taken from their nests and taken to the front lines. Whenever the troops in the front needed to send a message, they would place that message in a tiny canister attached to the pigeon's leg and let it go. The pigeon would then fly straight back to its roost, regardless of where it started its voyage. This allowed troops to send messages back to the commanders behind the trenches. Pigeons were essential to turn-of-the-century military tactics. By 1918, the war was wearing on all sides, except the Americans, who had just entered the war months prior. The American troops arrived on the Western Front ready for action. The French and British troops, who at this point had been completely demoralized by four awful years of horrifying warfare, were amazed and almost annoyed by the high morale of the cowboy-like American troops. The Yankees, fresh off the wildly successful Spanish-American War, approached every battle like they were rough riders at San Juan Hill. Some French soldiers called the American troops suicidally brave. It was this suicidal bravery that made the American 77th Division be later known as the Lost Battalion. October 2nd, 1918. The Argonne Offensive was part of the final Allied push along the Western Front, and the man chosen to lead this portion of the American Expeditionary Force was a man by the name of Charles Whittlesey. A civilian just a few months prior to the U.S. entering the war, Charles was more of the academic type, hair parted in the middle, large eyeglasses perched on his somewhat mousy face. But he was assigned to lead the entire 77th Division. Almost all of the soldiers in the division had been drafted, and most hailed from New York City. They became known as the Liberty Division for the blue Statue of Liberty patch they wore on their shoulders. They arrived in France in the summer of 1918, showing off their Lady Liberty patches to the Frenchmen whose ancestors had gifted her to the U.S. all those years ago. The American troops were stationed on the Western Front near the Argonne Forest a massive wooded area on France's border with Belgium that the Germans had taken very early in the war. Because the Germans held the position for so long, the forest was incredibly well fortified. In late September, the Allies began the massive offensive on the Western Front to try and end the war once and for all. Charles Whittlesey led his men well, and within a few days, the Liberty Battalion had taken miles of German territory. 
and were continuing to advance into the Argonne Forest. By the beginning of October, the Liberty Battalion had lost contact with the battalions to its left and right flanks. They had advanced so rapidly that the forces on each of their flanks couldn't keep up. Whittlesey sent out scouts in all directions. They all returned reporting finding just German soldiers. The Liberty Battalion was surrounded. The next day, the Germans realized they had a pocket of Allied troops in their midst and began to attack it from all sides. The Liberty Battalion dug in, near a small bridge over a river. Over the next 24 hours, the battalion suffered horrific casualties. Many foxholes turned into graves. Lieutenant Whittlesey looked to the three Signal Corps carrier pigeons that the battalion had with them. He wrote a message and put it in a canister on one pigeon's leg and let it go. An explosion of feathers rained down on the battalion as the pigeon was hit by a stray bullet. The fighting continued into the night, but the Americans managed to hang on. The next day was more quiet, but they had a new enemy, hunger. The Liberty Battalion had only brought a single day's rations because they expected to have a supply train at their back the whole time, as opposed to being cut off entirely. The hunger was intensifying. A reporter on the Allied line wrote about the missing battalion, referring to it as the Lost Battalion. The name stuck, despite the Americans knowing exactly where they were, but the problem was so did the Germans. Machine gun fire filled most of the next day. When there was a brief period of calm, Whittlesey tried to send another pigeon, but a sharpshooter took it out as it was flying back. The soldiers were heartbroken. The lieutenant ordered the soldiers to quit digging graves for the dead so that they could conserve as much energy as they could. Eventually, the battalion was under heavy artillery fire again, but it was coming from a different direction than before. They soon realized they were being shelled by their own side. Poorly aimed American artillery slammed down on the entire Liberty Battalion that was dug into the valley. The Germans noticed this friendly fire and began attacking from all sides. Ammunition, food, water, and medical supplies were almost completely exhausted. Whittlesey watched as soldiers who, just months ago, were Manhattan taxi drivers, Bronx tailors, Brooklyn factory workers, Wall Street bankers, and first-generation American immigrants fight for their lives against almost impossible odds. He knew they had only one chance left. He pulled out the last pigeon they had. In between enemy fire and friendly fire, he wrote a message and put it in the canister on the little pigeon's leg. The bird's name was Cher Ami, and she was what you could call a veteran, having delivered over a dozen messages during the Battle of Verdun. She cocked her head and cooed, blissfully unaware that she was the last hope of those few hundred men. Whittlesey released her and she flew off to a nearby tree. She simply sat on the branch and stared down at the pinned down soldiers. They frantically waved their arms at her, urging the little bird to take flight. Some frustrated soldiers even threw rocks at the tree she was in. The Germans must have seen the pigeon fly in the tree, so fire was now focused in that area. The maelstrom of bullets was enough to get Cherami to take off, but a concussion from an artillery shell explosion stunned the bird and it fell to the earth. But Cherami recovered and took flight once again. Nearly all of the soldiers of the Liberty Battalion looked up from their foxholes and willed the little pigeon on. A shot rang out and Cherami fell to the ground. Hopelessness fell upon the lost battalion. 25 miles away, back at an Allied command post, a pigeon slammed into its coop. 
A Signal Corps soldier ran over and found a carrier pigeon in bad shape, barely breathing. It had a hole through its breast, and one leg was hanging on by only a tendon. The soldier tried his best to keep the bird alive, while another read the message. Surrounded, many wounded, men are suffering. We are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on top of us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Around half an hour after Whittlesey released Cherami, the American artillery barrage stopped. A few minutes later, it resumed, this time hitting the German positions. The soldiers cheered from their foxholes. Whittlesey smiled. He didn't know how it was even possible, but Cherami must have made it. Within a few hours, an American biplane flew over. The lost battalion was found. The next day, pilots from the very young American 50th Aero Squadron dropped supplies from their biplanes to the surrounded men. Care packages of ammunition, food, and medical supplies landed amongst the desperate dug-in Americans. This is the first recorded case of an airdrop performed by an Air Force. Within a few days, American troops were able to mount an offensive to rescue the lost battalion. And just over a month after they were rescued, the armistice was signed and the war was effectively over. When the soldiers of the Lost Liberty Battalion returned to Allied lines, they immediately asked what had happened to the pigeon that had saved their lives. Cherami had lost her leg, but the soldiers of the Signal Corps had built a wooden prosthetic leg for her. The American soldiers treated her as the hero she was. The commander of the entire American Expeditionary Force, General Black Jack Pershing, heard of this heroic bird. He made it a point to personally oversee her departure from France for the United States as she began to heal from her wounds. Charles Whittlesey was later awarded the Medal of Honor for his bravery and leadership of the Lost Battalion. Cherami was transported to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey after the war. In 1919, she died from complications of her battle wounds. After the next World War, some 20 years later, the British created a special Medal of Honor specifically for military animals called the Dickens Medal. Cherami was one of the first in line for the honor. 32 pigeons, 18 dogs, 3 horses, and 1 cat have been awarded the medal since 1943. Cherami in French means dear friend. That brave pigeon was a dear friend indeed to the Liberty Battalion all those years ago. After she died, Cherami was mounted by a taxidermist and is currently enshrined in the Smithsonian Institute in the Price of Freedom exhibit. Historium is made by me, Jake Barton, and is a proud member of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get some sweet Historium gear, as well as participate in patron polls where you can vote for topics of future shows. Also, the Orbital Jigsaw merch store is up and running. Shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of stuff for all of the Orbital Jigsaw shows are available there. Recently, Historium has eclipsed 100 iTunes reviews. If you sent in a review, thank you so much. If you haven't yet reviewed Historium there, that's a really easy way to help the podcast grow. Lastly, you can follow Historium on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The next two episodes are from the more strange and spooky side of history, and I can't wait for you to hear them. As always, thanks for listening.